Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth and if you don't know who I am, this is my podcast called Behind You where I sit down once a week and I talk about all things true crime ranging from murder, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can subscribe on the YouTube channel and watch the visual version every Wednesday or head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts and listen to the audio version every Tuesday. And in today's case, we are going to be talking about the case of Elizabeth Olton, and there is a lot to get through, so we're just going to hop right into it. Elizabeth Olton was born on December 15th of 1999 in Jefferson City, Missouri. She grew up with her mom, Patty, her brother, Anthony, and her sister, Stephanie. Then when she was really young, her and her family moved from Jefferson City to a very small town in Missouri called St. Martin's, where the population was only like 1140 and so it was the type of town where everybody knew everybody it was a very quiet town so nothing really went on the crime rate was really low it was mostly all like wooded areas and when Elizabeth was a child she was said to be very outgoing and she was very kind she was the type of person that was very shy around new people and you know once she warmed up to you she was always cracking jokes she was singing songs and she was also in a lot of her school plays. Her favorite color was pink and she loved animals and her favorite game to play was dress up. Her mother Patty said that when Elizabeth was around nine years old she would always wear these big like fancy dresses and she would always wear them around the house as if she was just going to a ball all the time. She also loved music as well. Um, In some of the school plays that she was in she actually had to sing and some of her favorite favorite singers were Hannah Montana and Taylor Swift. So Elizabeth as a child was a normal child. She had her favorite things and she had her friends and her family. She wasn't the type of kid to act out or anything. She was just a completely sweet child that everyone loved to be around. And then on Wednesday, October 21st of 2009, Elizabeth came home from school that day and she started to practice for a school play that she was going to be in. So she came home, she started practicing for her play, doing her homework, and then around 5 p.m. while Patty was making dinner, there is a knock at the door. So when Patty opens up the door, she sees Elizabeth's neighbor, Emma Bustamante, who lived a couple doors down from them, asking if Elizabeth could come out and play. And she lived with her grandma, Karen, her grandpa, Gary, her two twin brothers, and her 15-year-old sister, Alyssa. And it was very frequent that Emma and Elizabeth would play together. They were really, really good friends, and they would always go to each other's houses, and each other's families were very familiar with each other. They were always at each other's houses, and they loved to play games, and they also loved to play in the back wooded area that was behind their houses but since Patty was in the middle of making dinner at first Patty said no to Emma because dinner was going to be ready soon and she wanted to make sure that Elizabeth ate but after a lot of convincing from Emma and Elizabeth Patty gave in she tells them okay but only for one hour because since it was October it was getting darker earlier and she just didn't want them playing outside if it was super dark So she was like, you guys can be out until 6 p.m., but Elizabeth, you have to be home at 6 p.m. so you are in time for dinner. And so the girls agree and they leave. And so the girls are excited. They say thank you. And that is when Elizabeth and Emma go out the front door to go play. But unfortunately, this would actually be the last time Patty has ever seen her nine-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. When 6 p.m. rolls around, Patty notices that Elizabeth still isn't home, and so she's kind of concerned because, as I said, it's starting to get dark outside, and one thing about Elizabeth is that she's actually very scared of the dark. So that is when Patty calls Emma's house, and she's hoping to speak with either Elizabeth 
Elizabeth or her grandmother or grandfather and it was her grandmother Karen that picked up the phone and Patty was like, hey, uh, if Elizabeth is there, can you please tell Elizabeth that she needs to be home now? It's getting dark and also dinner is ready. But Karen replies that she has no clue what Patty is talking about because Elizabeth was actually never at their house. Emma was at the house. Emma was upstairs in her room, but Elizabeth was never there. So immediately, um, Patty hangs up the phone and she immediately calls the police. Now, as I said, this is a very small town, so the police show up quite quickly to her home. And that is when police and volunteers from the fire department all showed up to the home and they started to scope the area as well as the woods surrounding the home. They started yelling out Elizabeth's name and after a while of searching, the police and volunteers unfortunately found nothing. Patty even tried to call Elizabeth's phone that was on at this point and every single time she called, it would ring but just go straight to voicemail. And then around 10 p.m., so it's been about five hours since Elizabeth has last talked to her mom, that is when word spread very, very quickly and hundreds of of volunteers all came out in the dark and all night long trying to search for Elizabeth, but unfortunately, no one still found no trace of her. The next day on Thursday, October 22nd of 2009, that is when the police decided to ping Elizabeth's phone because as I said, Elizabeth's phone was on and they pinged her phone to a very specific part of the woods. So since the woods was very, very large, it was going to be hard to find Elizabeth and Elizabeth was just a nine-year-old girl so she was very small too so trying to find a small girl in this huge wooded area was going to be extremely hard but the police and all these volunteers did as much as they could and tried to search as hard as they could. The police even got help from diving teams and police dogs and helicopters. After hours of searching they still found found no sign of Elizabeth and then unfortunately eventually Elizabeth's phone had died so they had lost their ping location as to where Elizabeth's phone was. But although the ping was gone and they kind of lost their spot of where Elizabeth's phone was, there was still hope because the police were able to get phone records from the phone company and try to figure out who the last person Elizabeth spoke to. And when looking at the phone records, they saw that the last person to speak to Elizabeth was 15-year-old Alyssa Bustamante, the sister of Emma Bustamante, and it was from a phone call that Alyssa had made to Elizabeth. So on this day, when the police were trying to question the last people that have spoken and seen Elizabeth, a child counselor was called in a professional that is trained to interrogate children. And since Emma was only six years old, she couldn't, you know, really take the pressure of an actual interrogator. So a child counselor was called in and this child counselor basically just sat Emma down and tried to get information on what were they doing doing when they were out? Did you see Elizabeth leave? Emma says that she indeed did go to Elizabeth's house and her and Elizabeth were together and they played together for about an hour until eventually they parted ways and she saw Elizabeth go down to her house but she didn't really see if she actually walked into her house or not. But then shortly after, that is when, weirdly, Emma's story had changed and she said that at one point when they were playing, Elizabeth and her were playing in the woods until Elizabeth got stuck in a thorn bush and that is when Emma had called out to her sister Alyssa for help, to which Alyssa ran outside and helped Elizabeth out of this thorn bush. So then Emma said that Alyssa helped Elizabeth out of the thorn bush and then they went inside and then shortly afterwards, Emma says that she actually pointed out on um, Alyssa's pants that there was blood on her pants and to this, uh, Alyssa just said, don't tell anyone but I'm on my period and that's where that blood came from, just don't tell anyone and so Emma just really thought nothing of it, she was like, okay, I won't tell anyone. So 
from the grandparents and a bunch of their friends, uh, when talking about Alyssa and Emma, because Alyssa and Emma were the last people to have contact with Elizabeth, they said that Alyssa would spend a lot of her time in the woods, whether it was raining, snowing, or sunshine, she was always out there, and some would even say that she knew the woods like the back of her hands. She just loved to be out in nature. She would frequently watch the wildlife. She would climb trees. And the grandparents say that the night that Elizabeth went missing, they asked Alyssa if she had seen Elizabeth that night. But Alyssa just replied with, quote, I bet she's fine. She just went home. So, because of this, the grandparents didn't really think about Elizabeth's disappearance too much. They just kind of thought that maybe Elizabeth had gotten lost on her way home. Maybe she has already came home. They didn't really know that it was like that big of a deal yet. They just kind of assumed that possibly Elizabeth was just on her way home. And then shortly afterwards, uh, that same night that Elizabeth went missing, that is when Karen, um, Alyssa's grandmother, and Alyssa went out to a dance at their church and again just really thought nothing of it. They thought that Elizabeth was probably home already. So after questioning Emma Bustamante, that is when the interrogators then question Alyssa Bustamante. So, a little bit of backstory on Alyssa Bustamante. Alyssa Bustamante was born on January 28th, 1994. She grew up in California with her mother, Michelle, and her father, Caesar. Her mother, Michelle, had Alyssa when she was only 14 years old, so her life straight off just had a very rocky start. Michelle and Caesar never really took care of Alyssa because they were very heavy substance abusers, specifically with drugs and alcohol, and Caesar was constantly in and out of jail, leaving Michelle to really, you know, be the only one to take care of Alyssa, but Michelle was constantly passed out due to drugs or alcohol and so Alyssa had no choice but to just raise herself and Alyssa's grandparents Karen and Gary they lived about 20 minutes away from Michelle and Alyssa and they would frequently try to visit as much as they could and they would also send Michelle and Alyssa lots of things like food and clothes and money just something to keep them afloat and then when Alyssa was nine years old that is when her mother Michelle had Emma and and then shortly after had two twin boys. And even though Michelle had more kids, she didn't really change her behavior at all. She was still doing drugs and abusing alcohol very frequently, as well as leaving her kids to raise themselves. And due to this, they would move around a lot from place to place. There were lots of times where they were homeless. And after a while, Karen and Gary felt really, really bad for all of these kids. So they decided to help Michelle and have them move closer to their house just so Karen and Gary could help out a lot more if they moved closer. So Karen and Gary bought them a trailer home and that trailer home lived about five minutes away from the house. So Karen and Gary were able to help out a lot more. And so, Karen and Gary thought that this would be a good opportunity for Michelle. They thought that, you know, this could be a fresh start for her and the kids. They could really keep a close eye on Michelle to make sure that she's not doing anything she's not supposed to. And in actuality, that is the exact opposite of what happened because instead of Michelle seeing this as a fresh start or sobering up, she instead just saw this as more leeway to be gone more often because she knew that, you know, if her kids were left alone for days at a time, it wouldn't be that bad because her parents were five minutes away and were probably going to come over and take care of them anyway. So, because of this, Michelle started to date a drug dealer and this drug dealer and her would be gone for days, just leaving her kids completely alone um, to go on like binges and then she would come home and drink alcohol and do drugs and be passed out on the couch the whole time. And one day, it was said that Gary went to go visit the trailer just to check up on the kids and Michelle, and when he walked in the door, it was the most 
saddening thing he had ever seen. He found Michelle passed out on the couch due to either drugs or alcohol. And surrounding the entire trailer, there were beer bottles all over the floor. There was dirty dishes in the sink. There was absolutely no food in the cabinets or the fridge. The kids were completely destroying the trailer home. They were fighting, they were running, and basically just tearing up everything that was around Michelle. And when Gary talks about this time, he describes the behavior of the kids to be feral. He said that the twin boys specifically would not listen to any instruction and would only sleep on the floor. And whenever he would try to get them to sleep in beds, they would have a tantrum, they would freak out, and they just did not want to sleep in a bed. And it really just showed the environment that they grew up in, in that they didn't really know that, like, you're supposed to sleep in a bed. They were just so used to sleeping on the floor or moving in and out from place to place that they didn't want to sleep in a bed. They had been accustomed to being comfortable in sleeping on the floor. Gary also said that all of the kids' hair looked very, very unkept. It looked like it hadn't been brushed or cut in a very, very long time. They looked extremely dirty, like they hadn't bathed in a very long time. And he said that they also looked very very thin as if they haven't ate in a very long time. So all in all, these kids were just completely neglected and the mother, Michelle, wasn't taking care of them whatsoever and Gary felt so bad for his grandchildren that he just could not stand by and let these children grow up this way. So that is when Karen and Gary said enough is enough and they were able to successfully get custody of all four children. And so when they were able to get custody. That is when they up and moved from California to St. Martin's, Missouri in order to have a fresh start. They specifically picked St. Martin's because they knew that it was a very small town. As I said, it was a very close-knit community. It had a low crime rate, really good schools, everybody knew everybody, and also a really big factor was that the house was surrounded by woods. So that means the kids could go out there and run and have a good time and be around nature and people, and they would really thrive in a place like this. And that's exactly what happened. Emma and the two twin boys really, really thrived in this place and Karen and Gary said that as the kids grew up, uh, Emma and the twin boys ended up growing up to be very well-behaved kids. They just needed to get out of that environment. But Alyssa, however, was not really thriving in the place like this. Alyssa, at this time, was 10 years old because Emma had only been one years old. And it was said that Alyssa was very underdeveloped and even though she was 10 years old she would have the behavior of a five-year-old and so she was completely held back mentally and Karen says that this is possibly because maybe she had seen too much already she had experienced too much to the point where it was going to be a little bit harder for her to adjust to this new lifestyle and then when Alyssa became a teenager all all of this suppressed trauma basically just came right back at her um, and she didn't really know how to handle any of her emotions except for drugs and alcohol. She got her hands on pills specifically and would take pills all the time just to numb all of the thoughts that she had about her childhood and her feelings of abandonment from both her mother and her father. But whenever she was on these pills, she had very violent and suicidal tendencies to the point where at just 13 years old, Alyssa attempted at offing herself by downing a whole bottle of Tylenol. But Alyssa was actually found in the bathroom by her grandmother and her grandmother had taken her to the hospital just in time. So when Alyssa's stomach was pumped, they found that she would have no long-lasting injuries due to this, but she was put into a mental hospital for two months. 
It was at this mental hospital where she was diagnosed with PTSD and an abhorrence for violence. And so shortly after she was released from this mental hospital, she was put on 20 grams of Prozac, which is a lot for a 13-year-old kid. And especially for her height and weight and her only being 13, this was a very high dosage. But even though she was on this medication, she was still resorting back to her depressing mindset and you really saw this through her social media pages on her youtube channel her youtube bio read quote hobbies include cutting and murdering people she would also post pictures to her facebook with fake blood dripping from her mouth as well as a gun motion to her head and there are even some photos where you can see her cuts on her wrists on her twitter account she would frequently talk about her depression her trauma and her violent tendencies her friends also confirm these dark obsessions by saying there was multiple times where Alyssa would ask them very concerning questions such as if they ever wondered what it would be like to kill someone. Alyssa also, as I said, had a YouTube channel where she would post random videos and in one of her particular videos, it was her and her two younger twin brothers and they were out in the woods and it looked to be um, like someone's farmland and there was an electrical fence where if you touch it and you keep your hand on there, it electrocutes you. And so Alyssa put her hand on the electrical fence and she was electrocuted and she was trying to force her twin brothers to also touch it as well even though in the video you can see that they did not want to they kept on trying to push themselves away while Alyssa was forcibly pushing her one brother to the fence and when her little brothers finally gave in that is when the caption on the screen read quote this is where it gets good. Ha ha ha. We get to see my brothers get hurt. And then the next clip shows her brother actually putting his hand on the electrical fence and getting electrocuted while Alyssa just sits there and laughs. And so from this clip alone, you can tell that Alyssa get some sort of pleasure by seeing people in pain or seeing people get hurt especially when she is in control of that hurt and Alyssa was the type of person to really express her pain that she was feeling inside through other people or even onto herself uh, at the age of 15, the record showed that Alyssa had over 300 cuts on her body, some on her arms, some on her wrists, her legs, and even words that she had carved into her body that read things such as hate and pain with a pentagram or a broken heart written next to it. She would also frequently burn and bite herself. So clearly, if you did not even really know Alyssa, just by simply looking at Alyssa, you knew that she wasn't in a good place. So as you can see, Alyssa has suffered a very traumatic childhood and although she was very behind mentally when she was a child, when she was a teenager, she learned quite quickly. She had really good grades in high school. A lot of her friends and teachers would say that Alyssa was actually quite smart. So even though she, again, was very behind when she was a kid, she caught on quite quickly when she was older, meaning that she did have the mental capacity to know from right and wrong, which will come up later on in the story. So although Alyssa seemed to be doing well academically and socially, mentally, she was just not doing well at all and so now that you know a little bit about Alyssa and her backstory now we take it back to the present day 
Thursday, October 22nd of 2009, Alyssa's nine-year-old neighbor, Elizabeth Olton, has been missing since last night and she has not returned home after playing with Alyssa's six-year-old sister, Emma Bustamante, but police found that the last person that had contact with Elizabeth was 15-year-old Alyssa over the phone. So, whilst the police are interviewing Alyssa, she seemed very calm and collected. Uh, She said that she had no clue that Elizabeth was gone because she hadn't gone to school that day to hear any of the news, but she did hear it from like her grandparents the night before because she said that her grandmother had walked into her room and asked if she had seen Elizabeth that day, to which she hadn't. So, as this interview is going on, they're getting to know Alyssa a little bit more and the police who are investigating the woods currently say that they found a hole that looks similar to a hollow grave. So, the police are immediately called and the interview stops and so the police go out there to see this hollow grave and that is when they invite Alyssa to come along with them. And so, they are looking at the hole and Alyssa says that she actually recognizes this specific hole because she just casually says that she likes to take dead animals and bury them as a way to to respect them and the way that Alyssa just said this super casually was very off-putting because usually, you know, you don't even want to go up to a dead animal, let alone bury them. And so, this was definitely a red flag for police because they kind of thought, you know, what if she was the one that killed the animals? And if you guys know that a big sign of a child murderer is due to the child killing animals at a very young age. So, this was a very big red flag when she said this and when she said it super casually like everyone did it that's what made it even more scarier so that is when the police wanted to look a little bit more into Alyssa and her story so that is when they had gotten a search warrant to search her house when the police walked into Alyssa's room they said that they found writing all over the walls of her bedroom some was written in pen while others in marker and the writing on the walls said things such as quote it was written in blood and then in capital letters it was written in blood there was also an outline of a person with slash marks on the head and the name Emma written next to it referring to her sister Emma there was also written birthday cards and notes hung up on the wall from her father Caesar that was in prison at this time they also found two pairs of muddy clothing and two muddy shovels which they thought again was very odd but when Alyssa was asked about this she said that that was just the clothes that she would wear whenever she would go out into the woods and find animals and bury them because this town was a very big hunting town because of all the wooded areas but the main thing that they found was Alyssa's journal and Alyssa's journal contained a lot of Alyssa's very dark fantasies thoughts and desires When they were investigating the journal a little bit more, they found that she had once said that she wanted to set a house on fire and lock everyone inside. And a week before Elizabeth went missing, she even wrote in her journal, quote, If I don't talk about it, I bottle it up, and when I explode, someone's gonna die. And then, when investigating the journal a little bit more, that is when they found an actual entry from October 21st, the night that Elizabeth went missing. But they noted that this specific entry was very harshly drawn over with pen. And they thought that this was very odd because all of the other dark fantasies that she had written down in this journal, she had never crossed out. So, isn't it odd that the day that Elizabeth went missing is the only entry that was viciously crossed out. So, they brought this journal into testing and they put that entry under black light and they were able to figure out what this actually said. And on October 21st, Alyssa had written in her journal, quote, 
I just effing killed someone. I strangled them, slit their throat, and stabbed them, and now they are dead. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my god, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky, though. Okay, I gotta go to church now, lol. And if you remember from earlier, the night that Elizabeth went missing, Karen and Alyssa went to a church dance that night. And from the grandmother's testimony of that night, she says that that specific night, Alyssa seemed to be very chipper. Like she kind of was a lot happier than she usually is. She felt like, you know, Alyssa was a lot more joking with people. She was a lot more social and the grandmother just thought that Alyssa was acting like this because as I said she was on that 20 grams of Prozac but recently when she went to the doctor the doctor had upped her dose so her grandmother just thought that maybe it was because she had upped her dose of Prozac so now she's like super happy but unfortunately that was not the reason why she was happy most likely she was on this euphoric high um, if you are familiar with a lot of other serial killers or just killers in general, some killers will kill not for the actual killing, but for the euphoric high that they get afterwards, where they feel like they're on top of the world. They have this rush of adrenaline because they just did something so intense. And that is what a lot of killers seek for. And from this journal entry, it seems like Alyssa was experiencing the same same thing when she says that it was very enjoyable. So the next day after finding this journal, they bring Alyssa in for an interview, be knowing that they have this evidence in her journal of her basically written confession, but they interrogate her anyway and they try to get her to crack just so she can tell her story full and full. <laughs> Oh, hey, don't worry. It's still me. Didn't mean to disturb you. I'm just in sponsorship mode. So imagine it's a stormy night outside, the fire is crackling, and your power is out due to the storm. What else is there to do besides sitting in front of this fire? Oh, well, cuddling up with the best game ever, Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a free-to-download casual mobile puzzle game with thousands of different fun and exciting levels and new challenges every time you play. Brand new events and challenges pop up all year round, so you've always got a chance at winning exclusive items, characters, and rewards. You collect cool fiends and customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. You can even power up your favorite fiends to get more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. Even if you lose internet, Best Fiends has offline play so the fun never has to end, like when your power is out due to this crazy storm. It's an easy and casual game to play whenever you're you're waiting in line, taking your lunch break, or just bored. I'm currently on level 37 and you can get Best Fiends free on the Apple Store or Google Play and even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's Best Fiends like friends but without the R. <laughs> So at first, Alyssa goes with a story like this. She says that Emma and Elizabeth were playing in the woods behind her house until all of a sudden she heard Emma yelling for help. So she ran outside and she saw that Elizabeth was caught in a thorn bush. And then so she helped Elizabeth out of the thorn bush and then eventually just went back inside. She also noted that Emma did notice that there was blood on her pants when she came outside to help Elizabeth but to this Alyssa just said that she was on her period and she didn't want Emma telling anyone so it seemed to me that there was definitely a conversation between Elizabeth and Alyssa of that okay this is the story you need to tell people if anybody asks you what happened and so Alyssa goes on an entire and uh, near two hour interrogation of just talking about this story and talking about what she knows and when you watch the interrogation you see simply just a 15 year old girl the way that Alyssa speaks and the way that she seems to be very 
very calm when she speaks. She doesn't really fidget too much at all. She just seems like a normal 15-year-old girl, you know, very soft-spoken and knows what she's saying and says it very clearly. If there was at one point when the interrogator uh, pulled out a map of the forest because she had told interrogators that she knew the forest very well. So, the interrogator asked Alyssa if she could point out because Alyssa also said that on that day she went um, on a walk for about an hour. So, when the interrogator asked her to point out where exactly she was taking her walk, she was able to do it with ease as if she had nothing to hide. But after nearly two hours of interrogation, that is when the interrogator then tries to come down on Alyssa and say that they actually found her journal in her bedroom and they read her journal. To this, Alyssa just started to have very long pauses. The interrogator tried to use this technique of just silence because usually silence makes people very uncomfortable and especially when you have something to hide and you have all these thoughts rushing through your head, your first instinct is to speak because your head is speaking so loud. So, in order to fill the silence, you speak with whatever you want to speak and this is exactly what happened to Alyssa. She decided to speak to fill the silence, but there were even times where there were 45 second long pauses of just silence. And again, this then forces the person to be left with their thoughts and to speak their thoughts. And it's even more pressuring when you're in a room full of people and no one is talking and everyone is staring at you. And as the pauses got longer and longer, the interrogator said that he saw a Alyssa get more and more stressed as the interview continued until finally the interrogator just asked Alyssa, quote, was her throat slit? And to which Alyssa said yes. And immediately when Alyssa said yes, that is when Karen, who was sitting in the room, her grandmother, because since Alyssa was only 15 years old, she was a minor and so she could not be in there being a minor without an adult present and so Karen was in the room with her and immediately when Karen heard Alyssa say yes, she screamed, she burst into tears and she completely just broke down and left the room. At this point, this is when Alyssa starts to show emotion. Uh, throughout all of this, Alyssa never really shed a tear. She never really looked bothered. She didn't really look stressed. She looked very calm and collected, but as soon as she heard her grandmother crying, that is when she started to cry. And even though Karen was outside, you could still hear her yelling and talking to other people. And from outside, Outside of the room, at one point, you can hear one of the officers tell Karen it's going to be okay, and Karen replies, screaming, quote, it's never going to be okay. And at this point, this is when Alyssa really starts to break down as well. You can really see in this part of the interrogation that she's starting to realize what she did and the consequences she's going to be receiving for what she did. And I think in the moment, Alyssa just felt like she wanted to kill someone, so she was going to kill someone without thinking about the effects that it would have on the people around her. And I think in this moment, she's really starting to realize all of that. So, at this point, that is when Alyssa just decides to deliver the truth. She told police that she had manipulated her six-year-old sister, Emma Bustamante, to get Elizabeth Olton out of her house and lure her into the woods. And so, that is when Emma went to Elizabeth's house, asked her if she could play, and then when Elizabeth's mom, Patty, agreed that Elizabeth could go out and play, Elizabeth and Emma went to go play out in the woods. And so, standing at the entrance of the woods was Alyssa. And so, at that point, Alyssa had Elizabeth and Emma went back into her house. 
So now it was just Alyssa and Elizabeth left alone and Alyssa told Elizabeth that she actually had a surprise for her out in the woods but they need to walk for about 15 minutes in order to get there. And so Elizabeth being a nine-year-old girl, you know, when you're a kid and you hear the word surprise, that is like like a magical word, you know, like all kids love surprises. They love when you have a surprise for them. And so um, since Elizabeth had been friends with Alyssa for a very long time, she looked up to Alyssa as if Alyssa was her own older sister. So she trusted Alyssa. She was like, oh my gosh, yes, I'm so excited. So that is when Alyssa and Elizabeth walked into the woods for about 15 minutes. But Alyssa had actually lured Elizabeth to two hollow graves that she had dug up five days prior on Friday. So on that Friday, um, Alyssa went to go take the morning bus to school, but instead of actually going to school, she walked back home to her woods behind her house, dug two hollow graves, and then went back to school and then returned home on her after-school bus as if she was at school all day, so nothing looked too suspicious to her grandparents. So once at these hollow graves, that is when Elizabeth looked very confused because she didn't know what this surprise was until Alyssa had taken out a knife that she had taken from her grandmother's kitchen and continuously started to strangle Elizabeth and stab Elizabeth seven times in the chest before cutting her throat and kicking her into the grave. And that is when Alyssa took her shovel and she started to bury Elizabeth with leaves and dirt and eventually just took her shovel and walked back to her house while Elizabeth sat in that grave bleeding out and just left Elizabeth there to die. When she walked back to her house, she took off her muddy clothes and her muddy shovel and that is when she wrote in her journal about how amazing it was and she headed off to church. After telling her recount of the story, Alyssa led the police to the spot exactly where she had buried Elizabeth and there indeed they did find the body of nine-year-old Elizabeth Olten. And when the interrogators asked Alyssa why specifically she chose Elizabeth and why did she kill her specifically, that is when Alyssa said, quote, she was an easy target and I just wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. So then on October 28th of 2009, one week after Elizabeth went missing and only six days after she was confirmed dead, that is when nine-year-old Elizabeth Olton was buried in a pink coffin and carried by a horse-drawn carriage because her family said that when she was alive, she was a princess, so she deserves a princess burial. At the time, Alyssa actually had a boyfriend named Dustin and Dustin also was questioned during this whole interrogation process. They thought that if Alyssa had done the crime, maybe Dustin helped her or had something to do with it. So they questioned Dustin and Dustin took a polygraph test and they saw that he had failed the test, meaning that he was lying on some sort of something. Thing. And they didn't know what he was hiding, but they were going to figure out what exactly he was hiding. So the interrogator talked to Dustin and said that they believe he knows more information than what he's saying. And after an entire hour of just talking to Dustin, that is when Dustin finally started to crack and he caves and confesses that he does indeed know more. He said that on October 22nd, the day after Elizabeth went missing, as I said, um, that day when Elizabeth was being interrogated by the police and she was like, I didn't even know Elizabeth was missing because I didn't go to school today. The reason why Elizabeth didn't go to school that day was because she was actually at her boyfriend Dustin's house. 
she went over to Dustin's house and she basically just told him everything. She told him that he strangled and cut Elizabeth's throat. She told him that she had kicked her into a hollow grave that she had made on Friday and that she buried him in the woods and she also described to him how enjoyable it all was and how much of a rush of adrenaline it was and basically just told him all of these graphic details that from the interrogation you can tell that Dustin is a very nice kid. He seemed very torn up when he was talking about this. He seemed like he just didn't really want to talk about it and even though he says that he wasn't there at the time of the crime and never knew details of the crime prior to the crime happening, he said that he kept it a secret for days and days because he was scared of Alyssa. He was scared that now knowing his girlfriend was capable of murder that what if if she then kills him or his family or that one day when she's released on bail she will find him and his family and come and kill him in his sleep and he said that he was also scared of quote if I have any more girlfriends like this. And so, again, when you're watching his interrogation, you can definitely tell that Dustin really was scared of Alyssa. I mean, anyone would be if your significant other at 15 years old comes up to you and explains the graphic details of a murder they had done to a nine-year-old girl. And while everyone is searching for this girl, that person knew all along what had happened. I feel like that's a very traumatic thing to go through. And so, through this interrogation, you can really tell how much Dustin feels bad for keeping that secret in. But Dustin was indeed cleared as a suspect and it was believed that Alyssa had just committed this crime on her own time and completely by herself. And then on November 18th of 2009, that is when Alyssa's trial began and that is when the court also decided that since Alyssa committed such a horrendous adult crime, she will be tried as an adult. And although she was trying as an adult, Alyssa continued to plea not guilty. The judge said that her crimes were so vicious that a juvenile detention center would just not be enough. The judge felt that she would be a danger to all of the other inmates there if she were to be put in a juvenile detention center, so she was being tried as an adult. And on top of being tried as an adult, she was also pleading not guilty. The prosecutors took the muddy clothes that they found in Alyssa's room as well as a knife that they found in Alyssa's room lying underneath her pillow. They took that knife in for DNA testing and it came back positive for Elizabeth Olton's DNA. The prosecutors also brought up all of the very specific things that Alyssa would say in her journal that would incriminate her, such as her pleasures in hurting others. They also brought up the video of her and her twin brothers. They also brought up a couple of other things that Alyssa had done. A couple of her friends had gone to the police. There was this one specific incident where um, Alyssa's friend was at Alyssa's birthday party and Alyssa's friend said that at Alyssa's birthday party, she was getting mad at one of the girls there and so Alyssa pulled aside one of her friends and asked her, do you ever wonder what it would be like to kill someone? And her friend just kind of laughed it off. She just didn't really think that she was being serious until Alyssa looked very, very serious. And her friend was like, you're not going to kill her just because you're mad at her. And Alyssa just kind of brushed it off and was like, yeah, I'm clearly kidding. Like, I'm just joking. And then after that, it just became very, very dark and awkward because the friend didn't know how to react to something like that but she inevitably just brushed it off as Alyssa making hollow threats. 
They also pointed the crime to be a first-degree murder, showing that it was indeed premeditated five days in advance when Alyssa didn't go to school that day because she had went back to her house and dug out two different graves. And also, the fact that she dug two graves was a big tell sign that Alyssa, if she were to get away with the missing case of Elizabeth, she would most likely have offended again and who's to say that that person could have been Emma. These graves were relatively the same exact size and as I said Emma was six and Elizabeth was nine so these graves were about the same size. They were about the same depth as well and so that was the prosecutor's really big point in that Alyssa would murder again if she were to be released or if she would have never been caught in the first place. Alyssa's defense team, however, argued that, um, as I said, since Alyssa was a minor and she could not be interrogated without an adult there, when Alyssa said yes, that Elizabeth's throat was cut and Karen screamed and she left the room, the defense team said that technically Alyssa could not have been interviewed for any longer after that and they tried to completely dismiss the whole second half of the interrogation where Alyssa had confessed to her crimes and was talking about her crimes because since an adult wasn't present and she was a minor, that whole part was technically not usable for court. And I couldn't really find if this part was used or not used, but even without that confession in the second and half, they had a written confession in Alyssa's journal. They found all of her violent and dark tendencies within her journal in her handwriting. They had testimonies from her friends about her asking her friends multiple times if they had ever wondered what it would be like to kill someone. They also have her boyfriend Dustin's statement saying that on October 22nd, she had told him all of the graphic details of the crime. And since Elizabeth was a minor, a lot of the graphic details of this crime was not released to the public at the time, but Dustin was saying things that only the person who committed the crime would know. So the fact that Dustin knew all of these details, it definitely proved Dustin's statement as correct in that Alyssa had told him what she had done. And then on January 12th of 2010, that is when Alyssa withdrew her not guilty plea and pled guilty. Now, she didn't do this out of her own free will. She did do this as part of a plea deal. And in doing this, they said that they were willing to make her first degree murder charge into a second degree murder charge only if she got up in front of the court and told everyone the line of actions that happened that day of the murder. And so she agreed to go up on the stand and tell her story from beginning to end if that meant that she had a lesser charge. And so on this day at this trial, the family of Elizabeth and Alyssa were present to hear her story, as well as members of the community. As I said, this was a very very small town, as well as media outlets. And so Alyssa completely told her story from beginning to end, from the time that she had dug the graves to the time that she had buried Elizabeth's body and wrote in her journal shortly afterwards. And media outlets who were there said that Alyssa spoke with the straightest and most calm face. She showed absolutely no emotion and no voice cracking at all. And there were lots of times during this story where Elizabeth's family had to leave the room because they just couldn't hear anything else. I mean, that's very, very traumatizing if your nine-year-old daughter is murdered and you have to sit there and listen to how someone had stabbed her seven times and then cut her throat and then 
threw her in a grave and just left her there to die with just dirt and leaves on top of her. That's a very traumatic thing to hear. So when the family had to leave the room, it was completely understandable. So as I said, as part of Alyssa's defense team, although she was pleading guilty, she was going to go to jail definitely, they were still trying to attempt at a lesser sentence. So the court tried to argue that she was not in the right state of mind at the time of the crime. They said that when she was evaluated to be seen to fit to stand trial, Alyssa at the time was diagnosed with PTSD, depression, borderline personality disorder, and early signs of bipolar. They also noted that Alyssa, since going to the mental hospital when she was 13 for her suicide attempt, she had been taking 20 grams of Prozac and as I said earlier, two weeks before the crime, they had upped her dose on Prozac and so this would most likely have her act out, commit violent tendencies, or do things without thinking first as part of like a reaction to this medicine. But the prosecutors basically argued and said that makes no sense because the purpose of Prozac is a downer. It's supposed to make you more calm. It's supposed to make you happier. And there's no evidence that shows that taking more Prozac means that you are going to commit murder. And so they completely dismissed that. They thought that it was a very big reach. And the prosecutors also argue that at the time of the crime, Alyssa was in the right mind state because she was able to figure out from right and wrong. As I said, she was very intelligent in school and she got all A's. And also on the Friday, five days before the crime, she had went out to her backyard and created two graves, meaning that she was planning on committing this crime and had thought about it for five days straight. She could have changed her mind. She could have not done it. She could have backed out, but she didn't. She pursued with the crime even though she knew what she was doing was wrong. And it even more proved that she knew what she was doing was wrong was she had crossed out her written confession. And then on February 6th of 2010, that is when the jury came in for their last day and the jury said that they would have a verdict by tomorrow. And that is when the grandmother of Elizabeth had shouted out, quote, I think Alyssa should get out of prison the day that Elizabeth gets out of her grave. And then on February 7th of 2010, that is when the jury came to a verdict and before they read what her charge was, that is when Alyssa said to the court, quote, I really am extremely very sorry for everything. I know words can never be enough and they can never adequately describe how horribly I feel for all of this. If I could give up my life to give hers back, I would. I am so sorry, end quote. And so after Alyssa read her statement, that is when the jury found Alyssa guilty for the murder of Elizabeth Olton and was sentenced to life in prison with a possibility of parole in 2024 when she is 30 years old. So, as for the aftermath of all of this, um, even to this day, Alyssa has tried to appeal her sentence multiple times. She has tried to appeal her sentence in 2013, 2015, and 2018, but she is eligible for parole in two years. As far as Elizabeth's family, um, they are still very adamant on speaking about Elizabeth's story and trying to get people to remember Elizabeth and also help out um, people and other parents who are going through similar situations. They work with a bunch of organizations that help parents who have children who like have been a victim of violent crimes or kidnapped. They basically just are very adamant on expressing Elizabeth's story and trying to educate young people about the stranger danger and if you feel like you are in danger, what to do and what not to do. Just basically trying to help kids and adults for not repeating history of what happened to Elizabeth. And 
Unfortunately, like a lot of other killers and murderers out there, there are fan clubs for Elizabeth, um, similar to like how people have fan clubs for Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. There are a lot of people online who glamorize Alyssa Bustamante. They say that she is innocent and that she should be able to be free in two years. There are people who make fan art for her. There are people that make Twitter accounts pretending to be Alyssa and making their account act as if Alyssa is on it. There were also people making Facebook pages wishing for Alyssa to be released, which is insanely disgusting and it's it's very scary to know that people like this exist and it's very messed up for the victims as well for Elizabeth because it's not fair that Alyssa is being glamorized and getting all of this fan art and all of this recognition when there is no fan art for Elizabeth. There are no Facebook pages for Elizabeth except those that are run by the family and friends. There are no people making accounts for Elizabeth and it's completely disgusting that these people are glamorizing the murderer more than they are the actual victim of the murder. And so yeah, that is basically the aftermath of all of this. That's as much as I could find and Alyssa in two years could be be out and about. So yes, that is the end of today's case. If you guys found this case interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you are watching on YouTube or if you are listening on Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to rate it five stars because it really does help me out a lot. I also want to apologize at the end that if I sound very stuffy or sick, it's because I am. So sorry if that was like a bother or or something. So yes, that is the end of today's episode. If you guys found this video interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on YouTube or if you are on Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to give it five stars because it really does help me out a lot. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Make sure to be safe out there. Go outside today, get some sunlight, read a good book, get some fresh air, um, tell someone you love them today, and yeah, do something that makes you happy today, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.